In light of Lent, we're looking at what Christ has accomplished, and so we're spending some time uh, looking in the uh, Old Testament at the sacrifices and how they have been fulfilled in Christ and what, what that means to us and how we are to live in light of that today. So Leviticus chapter 4, it is a lengthy one. I'm not reading the whole thing, okay? Anyway, let's get started. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord, that is, in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all of the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, and he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox at the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the skin of the bull with all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it on the fire of wood. On the ash heap, it shall be burned up. We'll stop there. The rest of it is mostly repetition. So, why don't we pray? Father, we come uh, to a book like Leviticus with some baggage. This is a strange book of a strange time, uh, but it is one that is all about how we can come to you, how we can become clean and be welcome in your presence. So help us to listen this morning. Help us to believe, gaining understanding about the depth of our sin and even greater depth of Christ's work for us. Beyond that, help us to obey, acting upon your commands to repent and confess our sins by faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the blameless Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Years ago, when I was living in Orlando, <clears throat> I worked at the Orlando Union Rescue Mission, and sometimes I would get a little bored in my little office after the guys went to bed, and I would kind of kind of open up the door and kind of peek and see what was happening out on the street. Remember, this is downtown Orlando. The police station is right around the corner, and you have... Good time Charlie's across the street, and uh, everybody had a good time at Charlie's. Um, and it, it also didn't end well, usually, at Charlie's. Uh, so I'd kind of watch, see what was going on, and occasionally people would come by, and I'd have a conversation with them about who knows what. And, I, and one conversation in particular sticks out in my mind, and that was a conversation I had with a man who professed to be a Christian and who said to me that he had not sinned in, 
I believe it was seven years. As you might imagine, I was slightly taken back by this admission that he had not sinned in seven years. I was a little strange and not used to such a thing. And, and sort of as we discussed this a little bit, what became incredibly clear to me is that though we used some similar language, we meant very different things by it. This is what often happens in theological debate. You'll use the same words, but you'll mean something completely different by it. And so as we explained our terms, basically he meant that he never sinned intentionally. Okay? The question is, does God count up our unintentional sin? Does it, is it as if it doesn't happen just because I didn't mean to do it? That's where this text takes us. That's what this text deals with this morning. The big idea of this text and the larger context of Scripture is that Jesus pardons and purifies our guilt as well as our pollution. The first part of what we're going to look at this morning is the reality that sin creates guilt and pollution. We're used to hearing the guilt part, right? But we're not always familiar with hearing about the pollution part of what it creates. God has moved from addressing our sinfulness, as we talked about last week in chapter 1 of Leviticus. It's, it's a, the, the whole burnt offering was more about our sinfulness than any particular sin that we had committed. But now he's moving to particular sins that are committed by the people. And as this, this chapter unfolds, he starts with the high priest. He moves then to the whole congregation or assembly of God's people. He then addresses the sin of a particular ruler, and then he goes on to the average Joe, you and me. Okay? And how all of these sacrifices are similar, there's a little bit of a change. You go from bulls in the first two to then you can go to sheep, because those people have less significance, ultimately, in sort of the life of Israel. Not, in, not from God's perspective, but in the life of Israel. And what we learn as we listen to this is the serious nature of sin if we pay attention to what it says here. But before we even get that far, one of the things that does pop up repeatedly here is that this is the breaking of God's commands. It is clear in this text that this is mentioned throughout each of these sentences. Someone has broken God's command. So sin, first and foremost, is a breaking of God's command either by... Omission, meaning you didn't do what you were supposed to do. We all know what that's like, right? When you're supposed to take out the garbage and you don't. Omission. Also by commission. When you do something that you are not supposed to do. This week, I told my kids with the brand new jump ropes, don't tie them to things. <laughs> They're meant for jumping rope, not to uh, you know haul one tricycle behind another tricycle. Commission <laughs> took place. The sins of commission took place this week. Not a serious uh, sin, uh, however. But not only is sin a breaking of God's commandment, but it's also, from Romans 14, we see it is not exercising faith. That which does not come from faith is sin, says the Apostle Paul. And so you can obey the letter of the law, but still be committing sin because you're doing it not out of faith, not out of the proper godly fear, not out of love. You know the difference, don't we? When our, our children obey for the wrong reasons. Or even, I can see it in my dog. 
When my dog goes inside the house because she's afraid she might get a swat on the behind, she kind of she goes in. That's not a good obedience. A joyful obedience is a good obedience. And so sin is obeying, but not out of faith, love, and godly fear. Okay, Romans 14, adding into this one. All right, because that one's not in the text. But let's look at some of the words that are used for sin in this text in Leviticus chapter 4. And the first one, that, that the phrase that pops out to us is sins unintentionally. Okay, we're already addressing the problem of the Christian perfectionist that I met upon the street, right? Unintentional sins. These are the idea that these people did not set out to sin. Okay? I don't set out to steal the covers from my wife most nights. It is unintentional when I do this, and yet I do this. When I, the first time I, I drove here in Arizona, you know, there are laws on the streets here of Arizona that are not found at least anywhere I've ever been before. Uh, particularly the idea of uh, being in a school zone and not being able to pass someone who's in the other lane. That boggles my mind. And yet, that is a law. A new person in Arizona, and there might be a few of you here who didn't know it, you could be breaking the law out of ignorance. That's an unintentional breaking of the law, but it's a breaking of the law nonetheless. And in the old days, Nathan would have pulled you over, right? Maybe not. But that's one aspect of it. But we can also sin on, in, on, ugh, unintentionally because we're neglecting the law and therefore we don't know it's a sin. It's clear as day, but it's, it's not, our ignorance is a self-produced Ignorance. Okay? Another word that's found throughout this text, particularly in verses 3 and 28, is the idea of sin as missing the mark. That someone here has missed the mark. There, that there is a target for love. There is a target for justice. There is a target for patience. And the person has missed the target. If, if I was to go shooting with some of the guys in this church, I can guarantee you I will miss the mark. I don't think I've shot anything ex- since I shot with a BB gun. You know, Shooting is not my deal. They will hit the mark. Me, on the other hand, probably not. It is sin. That's an, a picture of sin is to miss the mark, to miss the target. We see in verse 14 a, another word that is used, uh, sort of a different word, to stray. The ESV just has sins, but the Hebrew there has the idea of straying. This is used, this is also used in scripture to explain exactly how a sheep gets lost. You know, like we like sheep have gone astray. This is how they get lost. How do they get lost? One nibble at a time. That's what sheep do. They're eating. They're not listening or paying any attention to the shepherd. They're eating their way into lostness. And this is sort of what we do sometimes. There are times when we are sort of like kids who are so lost in their play that they don't realize that dinner time has come and they're supposed to be going back home. There are times when we as adults can get so focused on something and we, we sort of stray our way into disobedience. We, we kind of suddenly wake up and realize I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. 
In fact, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. Sometimes we stray into sin. These sins are covered by these sacrifices that Moses informs the people of that he received from God here in Leviticus 4. These sins, though they are unintentional, still require sacrifice. It's not as though God just does, oh, uh, you know, you didn't mean to do it, so who cares? We see that God is requiring a sacrifice to take place for these sins. And most of our sins, brothers and sisters, are most likely unintentional. They are not the kind we read about in Scripture, you know, I love the, the old English, when someone sins with a high hand. Anyone know what it means to sin with a high hand? It's willful. It's premeditated sin. That's the idea. You know it's sin, and you don't care, and you've been planning that. It's not something you fell into. It's not something you strayed into. It's not something you you fell into via ignorance or neglect, but it is something that is purposeful. Most of our sins are like what we find here in Leviticus 4, unintentional sins. And yet, in verses 3, 13, 22, and 27, it still brings up the idea of guilt, that those unintentional sins produce guilt. What's particularly interesting is in the case of the high priest, he brings guilt upon the whole community. Okay, So these unintentional sins still produce guilt. God imputes guilt, and sensitive people feel that guilt when they realize they have sinned unintentionally. Objectively, this means that you know you are wrong, or well, it doesn't mean you are wrong, whether you know it or not. Objectively, you're wrong, and objectively, you're in debt. What it means subjectively is hopefully you feel that wrongness, that indebtedness. But there's something else that goes on here that's maybe not as clear to us, but that is the concept of pollution. Not only does the, these sins, these unintentional sins, not only do they, they produce guilt, but they produce this idea of pollution, that sin contaminates us. In a sense, makes us dirty or filthy in God's eyes. Let me sort of illustrate that in, in a way. <clears throat> I have, a, I have a friend of mine who uh, is younger than me. He's like my little brother. He used to live with Amy and I. And in fact, he was living in my house when I first met, well, when Amy spent the summer in Winter Haven before we got engaged and everything. And one of the little questions I ask him when we talk about a movie is, well, I feel like I need a shower when I'm done. And if he says yes, that means I'm not going to see that movie. <laughs> because... There's something, when, you, when we see things that we shouldn't see, don't, we, don't you usually feel a little dirty inside? Like something's not right? And that's how, that's how that sense of, I need a shower. We, sh- we should experience that as well when we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. That something is not right and that I'm dirtier for it. Now I'm asking you to take this on by, by faith for now. I'm not going to, because the word pollution is not in here. I'll explain why in a few minutes, but this is true. And so sin, even though we don't mean to sin at times, 
continues to make us guilty and filthy before God. Let's get to the good news. It's bad news. The good news, okay, is that Jesus provides pardon and purification. We see it's even even here in Leviticus. God is the one who is providing the sacrificial system. This is not something that they have created to to deal with their own existential angst. Okay, this is not something that they've come up with to sort of make themselves feel better about life and about the fact that they just did something wrong. This is God has declared this, given it through Moses. He is the one who wants to forgive his people. He is the one who wants to remove their guilt. He is the one who wants to remove their their pollution to purify them. He gives this until such a time as we read about in Hebrews, till Christ comes. Because ultimately it is not the blood of bulls and sheep and goats that can remove the guilt that is in us, but it is the blood of Christ that removes it. But he gave this as a provision, a temporary measure, until that time when his son would come. And yet we find that these sacrifices actually make atonement. A word that we find in verses 20, 26, and 31. A real atonement takes place. But it takes place because of what Christ is going to do. God really forgave his people then because of what Christ was going to do. These sacrifices, as I said, make atonement as according to the text. We talked a little bit about that last week. We can't say everything every week. So there's going to be some weeks I hit something and some weeks I don't really hit that much. But again, that idea of atonement, that these sacrifices pacify the wrath of God. When we break God's law, God is ultimately, or he's unhappy. He's angry. Just as any parent is angry when their children disobey them. We can understand that, can't we? Do we think God loves any less? <laughs> he loves more. And so he wants good for his children even more. And so he's angry when they break his good law, which is meant to protect them. So this atonement is done in faith. You have to believe that this actually matters. That this is something that God has given. Okay? And that it's actually going to do what God says it will do, even though it may not make sense to you at that time. And so, done in faith, atonement really happened, but it was depending upon what Christ was ultimately going to do upon the cross. It's interesting, because then right every time it says make atonement, the same verses also have and be forgiven. Same sentence. Atonement produces pardon, or forgiveness. The death sentence against the person has been lifted because atonement has been made. Okay, So sin, I love this, because God here is both just and merciful. We cannot kind of play one against the other as if one is more important than the other. As though somehow one is going to trump the other one. But we see in the, in the cross, particularly when we look at Romans 3, that God satisfies His justice and shows mercy in what happens through Christ. Our salvation takes place not just because God is merciful, but also because God is just. He satisfies them both in Christ's death. Sin is punished 
in Christ's death upon the cross. It is punished. And because of that, sinners are pardoned, forgiven. They owe no more debt to Him. Now we get to the pollution thing. You'll notice, with even in the part we read, that the high priest deals with blood. There's a whole lot of blood here. Okay, It's almost like a Sam Peckinpah film. Uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember Sam Peckinpah, Quentin Tarantino for you younger folks, lots of blood. Okay, It's, it's almost like that. You, you, you kill the animal, and then the high priest takes the blood, and he takes some, and he sprinkles it upon the altar, and then he drops some at the foot of the altar. Uh, it's blood everywhere. What's going on with the blood? Why is it so significant? Why is it mentioned in verse 7, verse 17 and 18, verse 25, verse 30? Why? It is because the blood is what covers guilt. It is the blood that that cleanses pollution. What we find when we look at the whole of Scripture is that it cleanses the tabernacle as well as our hearts. The priest is spreading it upon the altar precisely because our sin pollutes God's sanctuary, God's throne room. Something happens that we don't recognize. Something happens that we don't see. It's like you have a contagious disease and you've just walked into a room full of people. They may not see that you have now infected them, but in reality you have infected them. Hopefully there's no one who's sick today who's making us all sick too. Right? Okay. But think of it maybe this way. If I had a barn and I just mucked out the barn, would you want me to walk through your house? Wouldn't you want me to get clean before I walk through your house? Or at least take off the boots that I've been walking through all the stuff that you find in barns? That's the idea. God's people must become clean so that they may come into God's presence lest they contaminate it. Lest they bring the stuff from the barnyard into the sanctuary. That's what's going on. That's why the blood is used in this, in this instance. And we see this in places like in Hebrews particularly in uh, verse 9. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Why do they need to be cleansed? Because they've been contaminated by sin. That's why pollution. Without the shedding of blood, it says in verse 22 of Hebrews 9, there can be no forgiveness. And so forgiveness and cleansing are tied together repeatedly in the Scriptures, not only here, but in 1 John chapter 1, which is what part of what we read this morning or before the sermon. Okay? It's sort of like, and I wish I had silver. See? I don't own any silver. If I owned silver, I'd come in here with a tarnished piece of silver and I'd say, what does it take to clean my tarnished piece of silver? I guess if I thought about this ahead of time, I would have asked if any of you had tarnished silver, right? Nothing will will clean the silver but one thing. Silver cleaner. 
You can take water, you can take soap, you can take Comet and abrasive and then do as, use as much elbow grease as you want. It's not going to get clean until you take that silver cleaner and then just go, and the tarnish is gone. There is nothing that can take away the contamination, the pollution of your sin. Good works won't take it away. Being nice to people won't take it away. Money won't take it away. It is only the blood of Christ that can get it clean. That is the only remedy that is available for our guilt and our pollution. Okay. <clears throat> What's interesting here that we often don't catch is that these animals were killed at the altar. And in this particular sacrifice, unlike the burnt offering, which everything was burned up on the altar, in this particular one, certain parts of the animal go on the altar and are burned, and other parts are carted off and taken outside the camp to where all the unclean stuff goes. We see this in verses 12 and 21. The rest of the body is taken outside of the camp. It is unclean. When we think about the work of Christ, we see that He was whipped in the city. His blood was shed within the city. And yet He died outside the city as though He Himself were unclean. Just as it talks about in Hebrews again, but this time in chapter 13. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make His people holy through His own blood. Christ fulfilling the sacrifices that we see in Leviticus chapter 4. And so the work of Christ we, we, that we anticipate here in the, the season of Lent is the only remedy for our guilt and our pollution. So now what do we do? That's a doctrine. I reviewed a book last night, uh, yesterday, uh, on my blog that I would finished up this week, um, God's Great Work. And the last couple chapters are about how we experience that great work. The doctrine is insufficient. We, we, we must apply the doctrine. We must have first-hand working knowledge and experience with the doctrine. And so how I've expressed this is confess your sin to experience God, God's provision. The reason why we can be forgiven, the reason why we can be cleansed is because of what Christ has done on our behalf as a substitute for sinners. But experiencing that is not automatic. As much as someone like Rob Bell might want it to be automatic, it doesn't happen that way. It's not like, Free pass for everybody. Okay? What we see here in Leviticus is that each time in verses 4, 15, 24, 29, they laid hands on the sacrifice. We talked a bit about that last week. We saw that before, that this idea of identification takes place, but there's also a placing of the sins upon the sacrifice. The unintentional sins are placed upon the sacrifice that they might be atoned for by the death of that sacrifice. Okay? In the same fashion, we are to confess our sins, which partially means that we call them what they really are. 1 John 1, we talk about if we confess our sins, homo legeo, to say the same thing, if we agree with God, hey, yeah, this is, this is sin. What I have done is wrong. We're saying the same thing. Paul Miller, in his book on prayer that we're studying in community group, talks about this, and he, he says, 
it's more powerful, it's more real to us, so to speak, when we say it out loud. Sometimes we don't really get the depth of our sin, the reality of what we've done until we say it out loud. Our greed is irrelevant to us unless we really say it out loud. Our gluttony. Come on, geez. I don't know why. Okay, Whatever our sin is, sometimes we, we, it just doesn't strike us as much more than a fiction or a fancy unless we actually say out loud that we've done this and that we need help with this. So, we confess our sins, calling them what they are, but we also are to confess our sins, placing them, not physically, but upon Christ to bear, asking forgiveness. Not just resting on a general mercy of God or, you know, that, well, you know, since I'm such a nice guy, Jesus. <laughs> no. Christ died for this gluttony. Christ died for this greed. Christ died for this gossip that came out of my mouth. Christ died for, any more G ones I can think of? My godlessness. Because I've been living life as though God didn't exist. It didn't matter today. You can think of some other ones if you want. But Christ, the reality that it is, that is atoned for because of what Christ has done. And so what we find when we do that is that Christ pardons our sins. As we see in, in uh, 1 John 1, God is just to forgive us our sins. Okay? He pardons those sins that we confess to Him and that we have laid upon Jesus. There is therefore now no more condemnation for us as a result of those particular sins. But we also see in, in, in 1 John 1 is that He cleanses us from unrighteousness. That idea that God purifies our polluted hearts, removing our guilty stains. We experience that as Christians as we bring that sin to Him and leave it there. Now, John Enzor, who wrote that book, made a great observation of the human heart when he said that our consciences are stubborn. And there are times when we just, you know, we still feel guilty. We've confessed it. But anyone, everyone, everyone ever wrestle with that? You've confessed something and you still feel guilty? It happens all the time, right? You, you've got to speak the truth to yourself repeatedly. You know, preach the gospel to yourself repeatedly. You have to Bring the truth to bear on that particular sin, that particular guilt, that particular pollution. So that you, your heart is living in the freedom of the gospel instead of being weighed down by sin and guilt that isn't yours anymore. Don't rest until you experience the freedom that Christ purchased. Beat it down. So the Christian perfectionist is in reality a theological fiction. We sin daily, most of the time, without realizing it. But when we do, we still incur this guilt and pollution. The pardon and purification that Jesus purchased are the only remedy. So let us lay our sins on Jesus each day that we might serve God with a clean conscience.
Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would grant us sensitive spirits that we might know our guilt and our pollution, but also grant us great faith that we may bring all that to Jesus, who alone can relieve us of the burden that we bear. Thank you for so great a Savior. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, whose blood is able to make the foulest clean. Amen.